Today's text is Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. Romans 15, 14 through 21. So it's this middle section in chapter 15. I've titled the message, Gospel Comfort, Gospel Goals. And those are the first and last points of the message. But the second point in the middle is gospel memories. So we've got gospel comfort, gospel memories, and gospel goals. Let's start with point one, gospel comfort. Gospel comfort. Look at verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. In light of the gospel and the believers' lives, they have not only been justified, but they've also been regenerated. They've been given new hearts. They've also been adopted into the family of God. God went from being their enemy to being their father. And another way to put that is they went from being his enemies to being his children. They they also began this journey of sanctification. Sanctification is the lifelong process where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make the children of God more like the Son of God for the glory of God the Father. God does truly sanctify his people. And he sanctifies his people not in identical rates in every person, but nevertheless, he truly does. He truly does sanctify each of his children. He makes them more like Jesus. He transforms them more and more into the image of his son. That's what happens. And it happens gradually over time. Over time, the saints are renewed. The saints, think of that word. The word saints, these are the holy ones. These are the ones who are both a sinner, and they are counted righteous. Think of the Latin term simul justus et peccator. They are both a saint and a sinner at the same time, yet the Bible describes us much more often as saints. The saints, believers, not just a certain select few of the dead, really special Catholics, but all believers are called saints, and they're called saints even in this life. So the saints are renewed. If you're familiar with 2 Corinthians 3.18, I'll remind you of it. If you're not, maybe you could turn there. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words... Sanctification is a lifelong process where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to make the children of God more like the Son of God for the glory of God. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are not sanctified by our own efforts. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And he uses the means of grace to make that happen. So we have this first point, gospel comfort. In light of the gospel in the believer's lives, they have not only been justified, 
but they've actually been changed. They're being changed. They're being transformed. And because of that gospel, Paul writes to them to encourage them. And he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. He looks at them and he sees transformation in their lives. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, says, I am satisfied about you. Can you imagine that? Think think about your work. Imagine the CEO of your company, like the top person in your company is coming to visit and you get a letter in advance. Hey, CEO's coming tomorrow. It's not very far in advance. CEO's coming tomorrow. You better have your desk cleaned up. You better look your best. Be ready to meet them. Oh, and by the way, you have to make a big presentation. You're nervous about that. That's a scary thought. But imagine that the CEO of your company sends a letter before they come and he says, I'm satisfied with you. I'm pleased with how you're doing. Think of the encouragement of that. I'm satisfied about you. But Paul doesn't just leave it with that. He also puts on these words, my brothers. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers. That's another thing that would never have happened without the gospel. Paul, the guy who went from from persecuting and killing Christians to writing to them, Letters of encouragement by the power of the Holy Spirit and calling them my brothers. Now, Paul doesn't use this word my brothers the way we do in kind of Christian circles where we just call everybody brother and sister and we we kind of throw things around, especially if we have something bad to say. We'll start it off with the words like, hello, brother. It's good to see you. Or if we're just being really fake, we'll kind of like, slap some of those Jesus words on it, like brother, sister, so-and-so. But Paul's not doing that. He means it. He, he genuinely means, I'm satisfied about you and you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Even though I haven't met you yet, I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased to hear how you are doing. Secondly, or the second line, that, that first line is just kind of the, the overarching um, Point, and then underneath, we've got three subpoints. The first is that you yourselves are full of goodness. You yourselves are full of goodness. Think of this as Christ in your affections. Christ in your affections. You yourselves are full of goodness. Sometimes, if you are still in what we would call um, cage stage Calvinism, you, you get really into this idea of total depravity, which is, is good and necessary. It's, it's good that you recognize that you are bad. You have to recognize that. But you can also be tempted to lose sight of the reality of regeneration, which is why I spent a little bit of time talking about that here. That if you are in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. All things are become new. If you are a Christian, you have genuinely been born again. You have truly been transformed, at least in a significant sense, that will be ever increasing over the course of your life. That doesn't mean you won't stumble and fall, because you certainly will. But that 
means that there is transformation taking place. There has been a break in your life. There has been a separation from sin that is a a true and unique work of the Spirit of God in your heart. He has truly taken out the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And that is not just for the super spiritual Christians, but that is for all Christians. All Christians have the Spirit of God. All Christians have been regenerated. All Christians have a new heart. So he says, you yourselves are full of goodness. It is okay. It is good to look at Christians and say, you are good. And I see the work of the Spirit of God in you. You don't have to respond, no, there's none righteous, not even one. No. What God does when he saves you, he changes you. And he continues to change you. You yourselves are full of goodness. This is something internal. It is transformation of the inner man in your affections. Secondly, Christ in your thinking. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. There's a transformative effect on the mind of the Christian. The Christian life is not just your thinking, but it is certainly, it certainly involves your thinking, and it's not going to go beyond your thinking. Your thinking is a foundational element of your Christian transformation. Christ, in your thinking, you have been filled with all knowledge. This doesn't happen automatically, but it does happen truly, and it does happen significantly. The more you, the more you are connected to the body of Christ, the more you avail yourselves of these means of grace. You're filled with all knowledge. And thirdly, (coughs) Christ in your words. Christ in your words. You're able to instruct one another. Someone pointed out that these three make up your, your heart, your mind, and your mouth. You are able to instruct one another. This is the gospel transformation taking hold even in your relationships with one another and your words to one another. What happens over the course of the Christian life is that the saints, believers who have been born again, who have been transformed more and more and more into the image of Christ, they are able to disciple one another. They are able to help one another and encourage one another. They're able to instruct and counsel each other. This verse here is one of the key texts for the biblical counseling movement. So I need to take a moment now and mention verse 14, the final line, it says, able to instruct one another. The word able is the word that where we get uh, our, our, the root word from where we get the word dynamite. So it's this power. You, you have the ability to instruct. And the word instruct is the word that we in seminary world get the word nuthetic from. So nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling. It is this idea of taking the Bible, taking the truth of the word of God and explaining it and bringing it to bear on, on our lives, on each other's lives. It's not rocket science. It's really simple. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not complicated. I personally, in, in my experience with these things, came to a point where I had been thinking like, oh, anytime I have a question, I have to go ask 
you know, this person or that person. Uh, when I was working at a summer camp and, and you're a camp counselor and you're 19 or 20 years old and you don't know anything and you're trying to like help these 12 year olds who, who know even less than you trying to like tell them about Jesus and help them with their problems. Cause every single kid at the camp has like bitterness. And, um, so you're, you're trying to counsel them and then you get these tough cases, the problematic kids. I'm sure none of you know problematic, I'm sure none of you are problematic, but if you knew someone like your friend, they were problematic. The question would come like, what do I say to that kid? I, I, I had a kid who's, um, his brother committed suicide and it's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know what to say. But in, in my own time as a camp counselor, I eventually came th- to realize, well, if I run over and ask the camp director, hey, what do I say about this? Or what do I say about that? How does he deal with my questions? He looks at me and says, well, Andy, what does the Bible say? And then he, I'm like, well, I don't know. And then I, you know, flip through and look, look at some Bible verses. And then you just kind of run back and tell the kid. And I realized eventually, like, I could save all the steps back and forth from my cabin to his office if I just ask myself that question before I even make that trek across the campsite. What does the Bible say? Now, there is one issue with that movement and with that philosophy, which is using the Bible like a self-help encyclopedia. That's not the purpose of the Bible. However, the Bible does contain what we need to live a godly life. So if you believe in this thing, which we call sufficiency of scripture, and you have anger problems, the Bible tells you how to deal with that. The Bible teaches you what to do. If you have a problem with lying, if you have a problem with being lazy, if you have a problem with stealing, if you have, there's all kinds of problems and the Bible specifically addresses them. And it's this pattern. You got to stop what you're doing, replace your way of thinking with God's way of thinking, and then walk in that path. It's very, very painfully obvious. It's so simple and so straightforward, yet it seems that that is lost on many people because we have this entire industry in New York of therapists and counselors who people go to and talk to about their problems. Now, if you do that and that helps you, I'm glad. I'm glad that it helps you. But have you ever considered what the Word of God says about your problems? I would encourage you, search the Scriptures See what God says. Try applying it. Ask the Lord for help. And if you do that in the context of the body of Christ, you have a a friend or two that you can talk to about your issues, you might find yourself saving $200 an hour on your counseling fees. The book Competent to Counsel, which is the... uh, first and kind of foremost book from the biblical counseling movement written by a guy named Jay Adams, that that book is based on this verse. And the, the essence of the idea is that you as a Christian indwelt with the spirit of God who knows the word of God have the ability, you are competent in theory, to take the truth of the word of God and to apply it to one another's lives to help them 
and to encourage them. Now, that being said, I've seen all kinds of ways where this has gone crazy. It's gone off the rails because people, they're shaping their advice more on what Paul would call wives' tales than on scripture. And so you have, in some cases, people being overbearing and pressuring and and forcing their opinions on people where it's not actually from scripture. So you have to be careful. You have to, to walk with wisdom. And I think that we'll address some of that in a few moments. Sanctification, it begins with a renewed mind. The mind and the heart are effectively synonymous in the Bible. The Bible doesn't cut things up quite so cleanly as a trichotomist would like to tell you. The mind and the heart are effectively synonymous in the Bible. And the mind, when it is changed, when the mind is renewed, when your thinking is changed, that affects your desires. That impacts and transforms your affections. And then your actions flow out of the transformed desires. Because effectively, in the end, the end of the day, we do what we want to do. So if you change what you want, that's how you change your actions. It's very basic, simple stuff. Now, God uses all of the means of grace to do this. I keep using that word means of grace. We'll just mention a few of them. The Bible, reading it, listening to it, talking about it, preaching, hearing it, preparing messages, delivering them, reviewing them, all that sort of thing. Um, Prayer, worship, um, the fellowship of the saints, the ordinances. These are all means that God uses to sanctify us. These are all things that the Spirit of God uses to change us a little bit at a time. In some cases, it's a lot at a time. One of my favorites that is almost never included in that list is suffering. God uses suffering as a powerful means of grace, as a powerful means of transforming us. Much could be said about these other means of grace, but the one, the means of grace that we want to talk about right now is fellowship or one another. I do not and cannot speak for every church. Some churches, the opposite of what I'm about to say is true. And when I say opposite, I mean the exact opposite. But here, the more you lean into the body The more you lean into the body of Christ, the more you lean into this local church, the more quickly you will grow from being a baby Christian to being a maturing Christian. Now, that is not necessarily true at every church. And as I said, some churches, it's the opposite. The more you lean in, the less godly you become, and you need to stay away from it because being a part of that is going to taint your Christian life. It's the same as with uh, denominations. Some denominational hierarchy, the church it would be better off the further it is from the system and structure. And you need to actually protect yourself from the system. But in this church, if you lean into the body of Christ, it will have a powerful impact on your growth. It will not be perfect, but it will be noticeable and it will be genuine. 
As I said, some so-called churches have the opposite effect. The more you lean in, the more you die spiritually. But think with me about Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned. For as in one body we all have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. I could keep going. But what this chapter does is immediately after saying, you need a renewed mind, he immediately goes into talking about the body. He doesn't say, you need to have a renewed mind, so let me explain to you how to do Bible study. What he says is, you need a renewed mind, now let me talk about the role of the body of Christ. And that's something that, while it is true that we are renewed by the word, the point I want to make today that I believe Romans 12 is making and that uh, we find in other places is that it's through the body of Christ. It's through one another that our minds are renewed in a powerful way because it's in those relationships that the truths of the word of God actually get applied in our lives. It's very easy to read the word and just have your eyes go across the page and not really recognize its implications in your life. But when you have other people in your life and you're discussing doctrine, you're discussing the word, you're discussing theology, that's where those things become much more practical. It's in the relationships. So there's no mention in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and the following sections of spiritual disciplines, though those are good or can be. But rather what you have is the influence of the body of Christ, which brings about a renewed mind. There is a one-to-one correlation in this church anyway between those who open up their hearts and lives to each other in this church and those who grow significantly in this church. There's also a one-to-one correlation between those who keep to themselves and refuse to be integrated into the life of the congregation even though they might be members and ones who do not see this type of growth and progress and transformation. This is all the more true of those who barely attend. If you come here once a month, do not be surprised that you are not seeing radical transformation towards Christ-likeness in your life. Those who barely attend are those are those who are seeing little to no transformation. You ask yourself this question. If you do, and you're wondering, well, why is my life a disaster? Well, See the proverb which says, whoever walks with wise will become wise and the companion of fools will suffer harm. I'm not saying that these are the only wise people in the world. Of course not. But I do know that there's a lot of fools outside this room. And if you are filling your social circle, you're filling your calendar, you're filling your nights of the week by hanging out with people whose agenda is entirely opposite the word of God, Do not be surprised when you find yourself becoming like them. Whoever walks with wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Think with me about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, 
So you have this walking, then he stops walking and he stands with sinners. Then he sits in the seat of the scoffers. This is the downward spiral of temptation. You're going on your way and then you stop and then you sit and you, you, you participate. You enjoy the company of those who are contrary to the will and word of God. The blessed man doesn't do that, but the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, this transformation that I've been describing, this this growth in your Christian life through the influence of one another, what I'm talking about is not from people being abrasive and overly invasive. It's not about meddling in each other's adiaphora. If you remember what adiaphora is, the word literally means things indifferent, things that don't matter, or things that are application issues that you can be a good Christian and have different views on, things that are not commanded to do or forbidden from doing. It's not about that. It's not about forcing your opinion in tangential things. But in the vital membership of the church, you've committed, as members, you've committed to walk together. And this is why, through the loving, caring relationships within the church, those who are known and those who know others, they not only give of themselves, but they also receive, and they receive such tremendous encouragement from Christ. God is actually using you as a channel of blessing, he's using you as a pipe through which the grace of the gospel flows. Christ is encouraging you through that believer. Because Jesus ministers to his body through the hands and the feet or through the vital organs, the head ministers to the entire body. This is the reason, one of the many reasons why there is such massive value in fellowship in this church. Fellowship with no agenda. Just love. Just loving and knowing each other. Just hanging out with no schedule, with no structure, with no program. Just come on over to the house. We'll hang out. We'll have dinner. We'll talk for a couple hours. Then it'll turn into six hours. And then you got to go and it'll it'll be a blessing and encouragement even if there's not a Bible study attached. This is why, you know, Emma and I had Jaron over last night. I was like, hey, let's have Jaron come over. He came over. We hung out for how many? Three hours, maybe? Two hours? Four hours? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a time. I enjoyed it. I went to bed feeling very blessed and encouraged by having Jaron over. That wasn't the reason for inviting him over. It wasn't because I was like, oh, I need a blessing. It was like, well, I think Jaron might need a blessing. But I came away, or I stayed, I found myself having been blessed just by hanging out. Why? Well, number one, he's actually a Christian. That's a difference between well, the way we do things here and some other places where it's not built on regenerate membership. So if the core of the church is believers, that changes everything. If the core of the church is, if the church itself is is a mixed multitude, it's not going to be that way. Because when you get together to fellowship, it may or may not actually be fellowship. 
It might just be people talking about sports. And sports are great. But sports are different than the work of the Spirit of God using the Word of God to transform you more into the image of God. So, if you've had an experience at another church where they had fellowship groups with no structure to it and you found this to be an utter waste of time, I have some ideas why that might be. But it should not be the case here, and I don't believe that it is. I think that there is massive value in hanging out together with brothers and sisters who are born again, they have a renewed mind, and they also like to talk about sports as well. In the vital membership of this church, where you've committed to walk together, this is why through the loving, caring relationships within the church, not harsh, abrasive, like being uber critical and saying, all right, let's uh, confess your sins to me this week and me poke and prod in all your business, but loving and caring. You will receive such tremendous blessing. So let me ask you a few personal questions. Number one, do you know each other? Just basic level. Do you know every member's first name? There's like 28 members or so. Do you members know everybody's first name? How about last name? Do you know what borough everybody lives in? Do you, do you know that same stuff about the regular attendees? How about the prospective members? There's like five or eight people in process of becoming members right now. Now let me ask you younger folks, single people under the age of 30, 35. Have you ever had lunch and a conversation with each of the families in the church? Like had a meal, like had a, had a sit down. It could have taken place at the park. It could have taken place at their house or your house or a restaurant. But if you're like single and 22, 23, 24 years old, have you ever had a conversation with one of the, 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 the old people? You know, the folks like who are 50. <laughs> If if you've never had a if you've never had a conversation if you've never had a conversation with Tim Salyer, you're missing out. Same with Mark Shirley. Same with Alex Waddell. As well as everyone else who's over 50. But that those are just the ones I'm wanting to, to point out today. If you are a, a younger member in this church, I would ask you, do you know the other members? And you might be like, oh well they didn't they didn't reach out to me. Okay, you have a phone too. You can reach out to them. You could say, hey, do you have, can you grab coffee sometime? I just, just like to chat and just encourage you and you, me, and get some advice. And when you have those conversations, maybe also be like, so how'd you become a Christian? Sometimes people, I think Matthew laughed at me a week or two ago when I met some visitor and I was like, hey, oh, your name is, are you a Christian? And I just asked that. It was like my second sentence after what your name was. But in this place, that's a common conversation. Are you a Christian? Oh, okay, well, that's great. I'm glad you're a Christian. Oh, oh you're not a Christian. Well, I'm glad you're here today. These are just a few simple examples Another encouraging would, uh, encouragement would be to find a person who's most unlike yourself and ask yourself, do you know their story? 
do you know how they became a Christian or are they a Christian? Like if I, if I went up to, uh, you know, Alexa and I said, Hey, do you know, uh, um, I don't know. Should we say Trenton? Do you know Trenton's story? Do you know how he became a Christian? Do you enjoy one another's company? Now, I know this is generally true because I look around at the end of the service on Sunday and it's normal to look around and observe people still talking and it's one o'clock. And like the last couple of weeks, it's like 1.15 and there's still 70% of the church still here. But let me just say that believer who avoids such relationships is cutting themselves off from one of the most powerful means of grace. If your approach, whether through work schedule or personality or whatever, if your approach is like the moment we say amen, you race out the door, you're missing out. You're missing out. This is not the movies. (laughs) This is not a Broadway theater. Well, I'm told even Broadway theaters, you stick around to try and talk to people. But if you're racing out the door, you're missing out on like 80%. Maybe not quite, but you're missing a lot. So I would encourage you, don't race out the door. Look for someone you don't know. If you're a member, look for the visitor who you don't recognize. Go talk to them. Get to know them. Encourage them. See, Christ welcomed us when we were strangers. He even loved us when we were enemies. When we were yelling, crucify him, he was loving us. And in in his death, he ripped the veil in two to make access between us and God, to bring strangers and enemies into the family of God. And through union with Christ, Jew and Gentile have been made one. So in light of this, out of gratitude for the gospel, We can encourage and we can comfort each other. Remember the the Heidelberg Catechism structure of guilt, grace, gratitude. So here at the end of the book of Romans, we've got the gratitude section where we say, you know, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. I'm a guilty sinner who received grace. And so now the outworking of this grace in my life, this, this offering of praise, it looks like encouraging and helping one another. And we not only can do it, but we are doing it. And you are doing it. See, Paul says to them, you are doing this. It's something that has begun. It's good. He looks at them and says, I see this good thing. So keep it up. It's such a blessing to see. What a blessing to feel the kindness of Jesus radiating out of the hearts of his people. What a blessing to see the mind of Jesus working out in the actions of his people. What a blessing to hear the words of Jesus flowing out of the mouths of his people. This is all point one, and point one is the main point of this message, or the larger point, gospel comfort. Secondly, gospel memories. Look at verses 15 to 17. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. 
so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I'd like to encourage you, we're not going to spend nearly as much time on this point or the next point, but the, the large part of the Christian life is not so much learning, but of remembering. Yeah, you have to learn stuff, and there is a learning curve. But once you, you kind of get that learning curve, once you have a certain amount of understanding, the Christian life is, is kind of a lot like a K through 12 education. So what do you study every year? Well, reading, writing, arithmetic, history, science, or Anissa's favorite, PE. So you do these same things over and over and over again, year after year after year. And it just goes a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit longer, a little bit stronger, a little more. You're mainly just reviewing the things you've already covered and then going a little deeper on those same subjects over and over and over again. Remember when I was a small child, I'm like, wait a second, I already studied math last year. Why do I need to study math again this year? But think with me about some of these words. When you first became a Christian, you, you learned words like Jesus. But think of that song that says how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. The longer you serve him, the sweeter his name grows. The longer you know him, the more rich that name is. Think of the word grace. You might have heard of it as God's riches at Christ's expense. But the longer you're a Christian, the more that word grace of unmerited favor becomes more and more meaningful to you. Now think of the cross. Whenever I hear the word the cross, I think of a line from a song that we've done here once or twice, but the, the cross still stands unchanged. The lamb is on his throne. The, the cross is such a powerful word and concept. Think about the resurrection. When I was younger, I didn't know, the, like, so what that Jesus rose? What's the difference? What? what What's the meaning of that? What's the impact of that? But when you start to understand the importance of the resurrection, it changes everything. Think with me about the, the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity. It's a thing that in younger, earlier years, I was like, well, why are we talking about the uh, essence and substance and um, the difference between person and all these different terms and so what if a person believes in, you know, eternal subordination of the Son? What if they don't believe that the Father and Son are ontologically equal? It's all the same to me. Well, a few years later, you realize, no, it's not all the same, and it's actually a big deal. It's very important to understand the Father and Son and Spirit are of the same power and essence. They have the same authority and glory yet different roles, and those roles are worked out in uh, the incarnation. Think about the word substitution. It goes from being a sports term, or legal term, to being the, the center of the Christian faith is the substitutionary atonement. Even the concept of forgiveness, or faith, or repentance, or the Holy Spirit. It goes from being an it to a he. 
when you realize, no, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. It's not like the Star Wars. It's not just this impersonal force. And then you also, like your ears perk up. You're like, wow, it's strange. That guy just refers to the Holy Spirit with the words Holy Spirit. And it makes you think, so is he in like some kind of cult? Because he's not using the normal words. And then a most basic word, gospel. The longer you're a Christian, the more you recognize the meanings and the, the depth of these terms. As you grow in your Christian life, it's like that K-12 through education system where you go around and round and round again, a little more, a little deeper, a little more understanding, a little larger view, a little more love, a little more obedience. The Christian life is a life of remembrance. This is the type of thing that Paul is discussing in these verses, verses 15 through 17. On some points, I've written to you more very boldly by way of reminder. So in the book of Romans, he wrote certain things really boldly to remind them of things they already knew. So think with me, you know, Romans 6. That's one of the most bold sections in it where he's like, oh, should we sin that grace would abound? And he says, absolutely not. King James would say, God forbid. Our versions might, their ESV might say things like um, by no means or absolutely not. Those are very mild translations. It would be like making the font like 42 point and uh, bold and underline and highlight with red and a whole bunch of exclamation points. He's saying, absolutely not. No way. No, how should we, we, we should not sin that grace would abound. He's very aggressively saying that. And he's just alluding to that and other things here with this line in verse 15 that says, on some points I've written very boldly by way of reminder. Motivation is because of the grace given to me by God. That's why I call it gospel memories. It was to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So what's happening is he, he's, as a priest, even though he's not really a priest, he's, he's offering the Gentiles to God as a sacrifice of, of praise to God. So he's bringing that large percentage of the world and saying, all right, God, here's the Gentiles. I'm bringing this to you as an offering. He wants the offering of the Gentiles to be acceptable to God. How is that going to be? Why would God look at a bunch of pagans who used to worship like the lightning gods and stuff? Why would God look at those bad people participating in temple prostitution and all sorts of vile things to look at them and say, yeah, I'm glad to have them. The way God the Father would find that acceptable is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does in you. I believe this sanctification described here is a is positional sanctification, not progressive. I think it is the work of the Holy Spirit to make you holy. 
So there are gospel memories, point two. Point three, try and go quickly. Gospel goals, gospel goals. Verse 18 and following. For I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let me just say, first off, we are not apostles. An apostle, capital A apostle, was one who had seen the resurrected Christ. That's not us. Because of that, we don't have the authority or ability to write scripture or to perform miracles. The apostles did. They did have the authority and ability to to do both. They could look at a lame man and say, rise up and walk. And he would, because they were apostles. Jesus had given them his commission, his, his call. So we don't have that same authority or ability. We're not writing scripture. This sermon today is, is not of the same character quality as the Bible. My emails certainly are not. But that being said, we are still, we are sent by the Savior, like the lowercase a apostles in the Bible. Do you recognize there's apostles in the Bible that aren't apostles in the proper sense? There are apostles in the Bible who didn't write scripture, and we have no record of them performing miracles. There were other apostles described in the New Testament that are not of the same capital A apostle caliber. They didn't write scripture, but they did preach the scripture. They didn't raise the dead physically, but they did have the resurrection life of the gospel flowing through their lips. And so they saw many spiritually dead rise to life in Christ. Think with me about Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God into salvation to all who believe. So first, we are not apostles. But secondly, Paul had a specific mission to preach the gospel in lands that had never heard of Christ. Now, we are not apostles, and we don't have that same requirement for each of us to go to these places. But in a lowercase a sense, we are to go and to preach the gospel wherever we can. So did you know that there are, according to peoplegroups.org, there are 7,322 unreached people groups. A people group is considered unreached when there is no indigenous community of believers able to engage this people group with church planting. So the churches in that region are not strong enough or large enough to be able to plant churches among their own people. Therefore, they need outside help. Technically speaking, the percentage of evangelical Christians in this people group is less than 2%, according to peoplegroups.org. This 7,322 UPGs, so Christian groups or Christian regions where it's less than 2% evangelical, this makes up 4.7 billion people. I think it's like 40% of the world. So in other words, half the world doesn't live in the Bible Belt. New York is not much higher. New York City is not much higher than 2%. New England is like 1%. 
Beyond this UPG stuff, there's UUPGs. Further, there are 3,180 unengaged, uh, unreached unengaged people groups with a total population of some 279 million people. These UUPGs are where there is no church planning strategy taking place. Nothing that's consistent with evangelical faith and practice being attempted. Now, some of you might think, oh, well, that sounds like my neighborhood. We're we're a little more particular than that. And it, it is basically a place where there is no Christian witness at all. Paul is trying to reach these places. Now, 2,000 years ago, that was, there were a lot more of those than there are today. Look at verse 19. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. His agenda was not filling every single gap, but it was to establish churches in key cities. And then those churches would spread from the larger cities to the smaller cities. People come and go from major cities in the same kind of way that we're familiar with. People would come to Athens or to Corinth or to Ephesus, and they would be there for a period of time. They would hear the gospel. They would be saved, baptized, and added to the church, as is the pattern in the book of Acts. And then they would move on. They would go to the surrounding areas, or they'd move to the suburbs, or they would start a farm, or they would get transferred for work, or they'd be sent out as a soldier. They'd arrive in a new region that doesn't have a gospel church, and then they would start one. They didn't just go there and complain, oh, there's no church here. But no, they would go and start a church. Not as an outpost for their ego, either. It's not like, oh, well, you know, this is going to be the, you know, the Johnny church. And it's also not because they can't get along with people. It wasn't an outpost for them, but it was an outpost for King Jesus. And it was to raise the flag of Jesus, not literally, but spiritually, to raise the flag of Jesus in lands that have not yet been conquered. This was how the entire Mediterranean region was saturated with the gospel in only a few hundred years. That's the same method that we're called to use today, to plant churches, and then those churches will plant churches. This is our gospel goal. So we have first gospel comfort, gospel memories, and gospel goals. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to consider your words. I pray that you would apply these things to our hearts, encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.